35. And the prophet proclaims, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing, with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall See the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness with joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for this season of Advent, Lord, where we can anticipate, Lord, the celebration of the incarnation of Christ, even while we look forward to his return. Lord, we pray for those among us who are sick, Lord, those who are mourning. And we pray, Lord God, in their absence, Lord, that, Lord, we would remember them as we continue to worship. And Lord, we pray, Father, as we consider what you have inspired through your spirit, Lord, that you would open our minds and our ears and our hearts to perceive and to understand and to believe what is being proclaimed about you and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we've had a bit of a week, right? (laughs) Uh, We have a few folks that are out sick. Um, For those that are in Sunday school, and this is not me saying, look at me, but I'm also a little sick, so I I beg your pardon as I uh, deal with this, right? uh, We went to Louisville this week, and I was around all these people, and we were all shaking hands, and everything else was going on. So, you know, it's just that time of year, right? So... But it's really interesting that today is the, is the day of joy because we can still enjoy, understand that God will 
his word will not return void, even those that are unable to be here to light the candle and to read the scriptures. Or for those that are mourning and unable to deliver the message today, Lord, uh, we, uh, we know that his word will not return void. But, but over the past two Sundays in this Advent season, we've, we've been blending our traditional, quote-unquote, for those that are listening, our traditional themes from Advent of hope and peace and joy today and next week love with what could be considered some creative sub-themes, right, that, that I've made up and I've also put some of the blame on Ethan. Um, but these sub-themes really have been based upon this concept of cultivation, like in gardening. So, Mike and Amy, you will appreciate this, maybe. Uh, but, uh, or I've got it totally wrong, and, and you can laugh at me afterwards. But Because as we've noted, though, with cultivating, these, these Isaiah texts that we've been looking at in the sermon time are really cultivating our hearts and our minds as we begin the Christian New Year, which begins with Advent. And so as we consider the theme of hope... In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, this served really as the tilling of the ground, as the stirring up of the soil of our hearts. And then last week in the second Sunday of Advent, we attempted to make sense of the peace of Advent in Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. And it served really as a threefold purpose text of as seed and as water and as food within this cultivation sub-theme. And so now today with our main theme being joy... I think this theme of joy really goes extremely well with these sub-themes of cultivation because this week, now that the soil of our hearts has been tilled, it's been stirred up, it's been planted, it's been watered, it's been fed, we are now able to see the flowering or the blossoming that occurs right before fruit begins to form on the plants and the seeds of our hearts. So this is where I may or may not have it right. I just know from my own observations, right? But this past gardening season, I planted a lot of squash and a lot of zucchinis and a lot of cucumbers. This is the first time I've actually had ground to put things in. I've always done container gardening in the past. And I planted things a little too close together. But that's okay because I still got a lot of fruit. But you'll notice when you garden, whether it be in containers or it be in the ground, a lot of vegetables, and this may be the case with all vegetables, um, right after you plant and you water and you feed and the seedling starts to come up, it eventually will put out shoots and the plant will begin to grow. But right as it's getting ready to fruit, a lot of them, a flower will open. This happens with, I know cucumbers and I know squash and zucchini because, again, I harvested a whole lot of them this year. And it was really kind of neat to see all the bees and that kind of stuff too. But, but a flower begins to blossom. And this really is how I think this text this morning illustrates for us the work of Christ in our lives. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, little flowers bloom that will eventually bear fruit for him. And so just very quickly, I just want to walk through this text. We'll just go section by section. And we'll see very simply what Isaiah is saying, right? How it would have been perceived by the people of Israel and Judah reading this. But then ultimately how it relates to the Lord Jesus and his work in our lives as we celebrate Advent. And then we'll just come and joy and we'll Eucharist together. So, beginning in verses 1 and 2, again, Isaiah proclaims here, he says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. So very straightforwardly, these first two verses, really what they do is they kind of help set the stage for the chapter, right? They give us the context. 
They do tie back to the previous chapters, but they move forward a little bit here. But to understand what Isaiah is saying, we need to keep in mind what the people of Israel and Judah would be understanding as they read this passage. Because ultimately what Isaiah is doing here is delivering a message to them that will actually serve as a beacon of comfort as they are in exile in Babylon. So even though they have been promised exile because of their sin, they have been promised exile because of their rejecting of the covenant of God, it is not an exile that is devoid of hope or devoid of the love and grace of God. That is the point that Isaiah is getting at here. And we can pick up on that by the phrases and the terms and the words he uses just in these first two verses. In verse 1, he says that the wilderness and the dry land will be glad and that the desert will rejoice and it will blossom like the crocus. Now you can see where this theme of flowering and blossoming started to kind of take shape in my mind, right? Because it blossoms like the crocus. But both wilderness and dry land can rightly be understood and would have been understood by the people of Israel and Judah as they're reading this. They would have understood this as the promised land itself because they are in exile. They're reading Isaiah in exile. They had been cut off from the land. They, it had been laid waste by Assyria and Israel first and then by Babylon and Judah later. It was now a wilderness. And these terms, desert and wilderness, were also terms that were not unfamiliar to them in their history. Their minds would have immediately thought about their 40-year wandering in the wilderness during the Exodus. But they would have also thought about the land itself more than the fact that it was laying waste because of Assyria and Babylon. They would have also thought about certain regions of the land. The wilderness, the Judean wilderness was very rocky and craggy. It was mountainous. This is where Christ was tempted in the wilderness. The southern portion of the land is called, depending on who you ask, the Negev with a B or Negev with a V. Depends on how you pronounce that Hebrew letter. But it is dry. It is desertous. But at the same time, we can't miss the spiritual significance of what Isaiah is saying. And this is really what I appreciate about what Craig just said a moment ago. Because Isaiah is illustrating for his readers here, including Israel and Judah and now us, that their hearts had become a wilderness. And their minds had become a dry land. For all intents and purposes, they had abandoned the Lord. And they had abandoned his covenant with them. Their spiritual lives had become as barren as the desert. And by the time they end up as slaves in exile, they finally begin to understand this. And as Isaiah proclaims here, he says they can actually praise the Lord God even in their exile because there is still cause for joy. Because the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. It will rejoice. And a place where water is scarce and where vegetation finds itself difficult to grow, the soil has been tilled by the Lord God. It's been watered by God. It's been fed by God. It has been planted by God, and now it will blossom like a crocus. Now, I had to look that flower up. I'm sure some people are probably more familiar with it than I am. But crocuses, and that might not even be the right plural term for that. It might be croci. I don't know. But they can come in all shapes and colors. Uh, very, they're very pretty from just images I saw on a Google search. Right? They can be purple or orange or red or sometimes pink or yellow. But they're also, from what I very briefly read, they're a very hardy flower. And they're so hardy that they can actually grow not only in very hot conditions, but very dry conditions. They take desert conditions very well. And so notice here in verse 2, though, that the crocus 
It doesn't simply blossom. It's not like it just shoots up and it blossoms. But Isaiah promises here through the Lord God, he says that it will actually blossom abundantly. The Lord Jesus tells us in John 10.10, he says, I came that you may have life and that you may may have it abundantly. And so the dead and the dry wilderness, the desert of desolation, it will rejoice with joy and with singing. And again, the details in this imagery that Isaiah draws upon are important for how this text really helps our own hearts to flower and to blossom this Advent season. Because he writes here that they will rejoice with joy and singing because, he says here in the rest of verse 2, because the glory of Lebanon will be given to the desert. And the wilderness, as well as the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, will be given to the desert and to the wilderness. Again, this is imagery that's relatable to the people. They know their geography. They know their land. They know where God gave them to dwell. Because the forests of Lebanon, they were further north, but they were a mighty forest. These trees were massive. They could grow somewhere of up to 130 feet in height, if not taller, and they could live for quite a few hundred years. These were the same trees that, as I understand it, that was used when Solomon constructed the temple. These are massive trees. These are glorious trees. Carmel is a mountain that's very important in the history of Israel. It sits toward the western side of the mountain range. But Carmel is where Elijah prays to God to consume his sacrifice in order to show Yahweh's glory over and above that of the prophets and false god of Baal. And whereas the plains of Sharon, these are the coastal plains. They sit on the western border up against the Mediterranean Sea. And they actually sit somewhat on the foothills of Mount Carmel. So you can imagine the beautiful view of looking on a very lush mountain over the ocean. But this tells us that both the high places like Carmel and the low places will display the full glory of the Lord God. And so God's promise here to his people at the beginning of this chapter is that in exile they can have abundant joy in the Lord their God because... The desert of desolation, both of the land and of their hearts and minds, will be restored into a blossoming and abundant forest. And as he ends the verse here, full of God's glory and of God's majesty. And then we come to the next two verses, verses 3 and 4, and you start to see more specifically how this relates to the coming Messiah. He says this, he says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So let's continue working out of this context of exile. By the promise given through Isaiah, what the people of Israel and Judah would have understood him to be saying here is that when the exile is over, weakened hands will be made strong, feeble knees will be that are riddled with pain and arthritis, they're going to be restored. They're going to be made firm. They'll be able to stand up straight. Their slavery in Babylon would be at an end. Their aching hands and knees will rest. Their hunched backs, formerly burdened with the weight of slavery, will stand up strong and straight. But again, there's a very intentional spiritual significance underneath this text at work. Those whose hearts are weak and feeble, as well as anxious, will also be made strong and will be restored. Not just because the exile in Babylon is over, but because God himself is coming. Yahweh is coming. Messiah is coming. 
He tells them, have no fear because God himself will come and he will come with vengeance to pour out his vengeance upon their enemies. He will come and he will bring with him recompense or repayment for the deeds that they had done to them. He will deliver his people from their captors and repay their captors for the evil that was committed against them. One church father writes here, he says, by recompense, Isaiah means that Christ will satisfy the justice of the father. He will redeem the world, but he will also refute all false interpretations of his word, and he will bring Satan into subjection. Justin Martyr goes even further. He says this. He says that the actions of Christ must be seen alongside the rule of all the scriptures. We, and we can see here that Christ's work consists of two actions. It consists of preaching and power. And so in power, through the proclamation of himself as the incarnate word, not only would the people return from exile, and not only would their captors be overthrown, but even more so the Messiah himself would overthrow and has overthrown the domain of the ultimate captor of God's people, Satan, the prince of this world. And Christ himself has come and he will come again as we proclaim in the creed every week. He will come again bringing with him recompense and vengeance to deliver his people from the captivity of Satan and hell and sin and death itself. He even proclaims this of himself in Revelation twenty two twelve. He says, behold, I am coming soon and I am bringing my repayment with me. Now, this is not just a hopeful promise given to Israel and Judah as they're laboring in exile in Babylon. But this is also given to us in the church as we live in exile now. This is a call to persevere in the faith. In our weakness, in our feebleness, in our anxieties, we are to be reminded, as Paul proclaims, that God's grace is and always will be sufficient for us. And that his power is made perfect in our weakness. So be strong and do not fear. Or another way of saying this is, have joy this Advent season. Rejoice in the new Christian year. And let the tilled and planted and watered and fed soil of our hearts blossom and flower in the hope and joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ has come in the flesh. And he has brought vengeance and recompense upon the evil one. And he's done so by his work on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. But then, if that wasn't enough to make you joyful, Isaiah doesn't stop. Right? He goes on in verses 5 through 7, and he just keeps piling it on. What he does here is he shows us how we can be joyful for what has already been fulfilled in the first advent of Christ. Listen to what he says in verses 5 through 7. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water, and in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Again, there is both what I would say, I'm going to call it a literal reality, but I had a hard time with terms here, because I want to say there's a literal and a spiritual reality, but the spiritual reality doesn't mean that it's also not literal. So it's just hard to make those terms in my brain this week. But I want to point out the literal and the spiritual reality. Because literally, we can understand that this has literally been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. These things have happened. These things took place in the earthly ministry of Christ. But they also continue to take place in the ministry and the life of the church as we read through the book of Acts and as we read throughout church history. 
But again, pay attention to the spiritual reality at work underneath just these three verses. The blindness of our hearts have been regenerated and opened to faith and belief in Christ. We now have eyes to see. The deafness of our ears have been opened. They have been regenerated to hear the gospel and to comprehend it. We have ears to hear. This is a reality that causes us to leap with joy. We are no longer lame. But it is a work of the, it is a work of the Spirit that also unbinds our tongues so that we are no longer mute, but so that we can also boldly proclaim these truths to the world so that the same process can continue on over and over and over again. As one of the fathers writes here, he says, Although as blind men we had no bodily eyes, we now have the vision of faith and heart with which they are able to see the true and eternal light. And about whom it is written, he is the true light coming into the world. And so because of this work, we see here at the end of verse 7, life and abundance and blossoming and flowering, all these things take place. The dead and lifeless desert becomes a pool of refreshing water. The dry land overflows with springs of life-giving water. The crags and the rocky mountain dens of wild dogs instead becomes a place full of reeds and rushes. This becomes a place of abundant life. And then finally, in these last three verses, 8 through 10, we can see how this joy leads to the flowering or the blossoming for us as the church. Again, Isaiah, he uses very particular key words and phrases to help us in our understanding. First, in verse 8, he uses a very familiar phrase that should be, or at least should be very familiar to us New Testament readers. He says this, And a highway will be there, and it shall be called, it shall be called the way of holiness. He uses this phrase, the way. So he notes here that the land, that the way of holiness, excuse me, Isaiah proclaims here that there will be a highway called the way of holiness that shall be in the land at the return of the exiles. And it shall belong to those who walk on it, noting that even if they are fools, the highway is so very clearly marked that that even the most absent-minded fool would not miss it and cannot go astray from it once he is on it. uh, Jesus proclaims in John 14, he says, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 9, verse 10, the earliest of the early church called themselves followers of the way. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Christ is this highway. But notice, right in the middle of the verse... There's a condition placed upon those who walk upon the highway of holiness. Isaiah says here, he says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness, but the unclean shall not pass over it. What he's saying here is that the unrepentant shall not walk upon it. They shall not walk upon it. Instead, it only belongs to those who walk on the way. And so this should remind us of some very specific conditions that Christ places upon his church. He tells tells the apostles further in John 14, he says, If you love me, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. If anyone loves me, then he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. But whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then John himself repeats the same teaching in 1 John chapter 1, 6 and 7. He says, 
If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the reason why the unclean cannot walk upon or pass over the way called holiness is because the unclean are unrepentant. They are still held captive by the evil one and their sins. They do not love Christ. And the proof that they do not love Christ is because they do not keep his commands. And instead, as John says, they walk in darkness. But as Isaiah explains here, he says the way is very clearly marked. And one simply needs to follow the way, and he or she will not go astray. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it rhymed anyway. But then notice in verse 9 how safe this highway of the way called holiness will be and is now that Messiah has come. He goes on, he says, No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. He said, if you recall from last week in chapter 11, one of the many marks of the outcomes of Christ's righteous judgment is that among all animal kind and all mankind, there will be a pre-fall peace. The highway called the way of holiness is a highway of joy because it is a highway of peace. No violent creature, no robber will molest those who walk on the way because Christ, because only the redeemed walk upon the way. No one else walks upon the way. The redeemed walk upon the way. And the way himself has brought joy and peace. And so because of the safe and clearly marked highway, Isaiah proclaims in verse 10 that the ransomed shall return. Now this is both a promise of return from exile for Israel and Judah, but even more so, this is a promise that is fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Because Christ himself has ransomed those who walk upon the way. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he even proclaims, The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, Paul reminds Timothy of this same joyful truth. We looked at this verse back over the summer. He says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So those who have been ransomed by Christ shall walk upon the highway called holiness to its ultimate destination, as Isaiah proclaims here at the end of verse 10. This is a place where there will be everlasting joy and gladness. This is a place where sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is Zion, the mountain of God, which, has, which Isaiah has already explained to us back in chapter 2, that this is both Christ and his people. This is, this is Christ and his church. And so for this third Sunday of Advent... Now that the soil and the dry desert of our hearts have been tilled by God, they have been planted by God, they have been watered and fed by God, let them blossom and flower in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only for Advent, but for the entirety of this new year in the Christian calendar. Let the joy of Christ in our hearts ring out like the glory of Lebanon and like the majesty of Mount Carmel and like the beauty of the plains of Sharon. Enjoy, follow the way, walk upon the way called holiness and receive everlasting joy and gladness where sorrow and sighing will forever flee away. So may God bless the reading and teaching of his word to the glory of his name.
and for the edification of his people.